0: What's
1: it like sailing out there all alone? You're either sleep deprived or seasick. And after a few days, there's hallucinations. You were recording from the south while I was uh, further north, but this week we actually have reverse roles, as you can tell, because I'm doing this intro that you usually do. Um, And I think that this is important because uh, when you do the intro, you always ask me how I'm doing, uh, and then I go on some tangent about something that's going on in my personal life, but then we never actually get to hear how you're doing. And maybe that's partially my fault because I, I'm just being a bad friend and not asking how are you doing. Um, but now that the shoe is on the other foot, I want to ask, Scott,
2: um, for all of our concerned listeners out there, how are you doing? Yeah, you know, we're, we're five months into this podcast and our listeners are finally going to get to hear how I'm doing uh, for the, like, four <laughs> days that it's been since we last recorded. No, 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 you could have been having a midlife crisis this whole time. I mean, who knows? Maybe I, maybe I was. I don't remember. It's, uh, it's all in the past. No, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm actually I'm not in the south any longer. I'm back up, back up in Boston where I live. And yeah, I was down there for Memorial Day weekend. Back up here, I had a pretty light week, but I'm really looking forward to the summer up here. And it's really starting to get nice. Uh, it, it's no longer zero degrees when I'm walking to work. So there's always that to uh, be be excited about. Yeah, that's always nice. I don't know how the
1: it is rain wise there, but it rain. It's already rained like a ton here in DC, and it. It
2: doesn't look like it's going to get any better going forward. Yeah, it's it's very. I mean, we I mean, obviously, Boston's on the coast, so it's like very yeah. hit and miss. Like, it's, it, it's not like Tennessee, where I feel like they just predict rain every day, and sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Um, right. Up here, it's like, oh, there's like a, a couple days in a row where you'll get rain because it's all just like one storm on the coast, and then and then other days where, or like, and then there might be literally weeks where it doesn't rain at all, um, which is nice. No, I, I it, it's still not quite summer yet. It's like getting close, but. The temperature is pretty like consistently in the seventies, which is like my dream. So, so it's it's really nice. And so I've been spending a little bit more out time outside and a little less time at the movies, to be honest. Uh, but that's not still have plenty oh, of time to. No, that's, that's not what our listeners want to hear. Well, no, I, I, I so I just don't have much to add like outside of the movies that we're doing now. So, or I've, yeah. I've, I'm watching like fewer TV shows. Maybe it's probably is actually probably the answer. Unfortunately, the rain did seem to uh, to hit the
1: Celtics um, in the <laughs> game seven of their series against the Cavs. Um, I know you, you were telling
2: me last week that you thought they were going to be able to pull it out, but, um, I thought they, yeah, well, I thought they were going to pull it out and then they shot like 5% Yeah, or something like that. I mean, the, was it, it had to be one of the lowest scoring games in like years. I mean, it's the, it's the NBA. I mean, the NBA is rigged, like. You saw that happen to the Celtics in Game Seven, and then the, the Rockets, Rockets shot, missed yeah. twenty-seven consecutive threes Unreal. in their Game Seven. Like, it just the NBA is rigged. But that's for our sports podcast. Um, yeah. So our our last episode of the show um, clocked in at a running time even longer than Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, oh, wait, was it actually? While, was it? I didn't actually compare the two. That's funny. I think. Well, wasn't wasn't Blade Runner like two hours thirty six minutes? If not longer. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> that, that, that needs to be a new category
1: on the down To go along with movie release dates,
2: movie running times. That'd actually be amazing. I'd love that. <laughs> it would be so difficult, but... Yeah. Yeah, so Blade Runner 2049 clocked in at 2 hours and 44 minutes, and I think that was, I mean... Did, I think our show might have been one minute longer last week. Oh, amazing. If you count the post credit scene. <laughs> if you count the post... Yeah. Dude, you, gotta, you always have to hang around our podcast for the post credit scene Yeah. So. <laughs> But yeah, but regardless, um, we hope that even though
1: it was, it was very long, we hope that you enjoyed that episode. Um, however, we will be keeping things
2: shorter this week. Um, In fact, significantly shorter. I suspect we might actually be less than half of that time this week. Yes, uh, knock on wood, but we have only one movie to discuss this week, uh, and that movie is Adrift. So without
1: further ado, why don't we jump right into it? Let's do it. Adrift um, is the latest American feature from the Icelandic director Balthazar Kormakur, whose recent credits include the Mark Wahlberg thrillers Two Guns and Contraband, as well as Everest, which uh, I never actually saw Everest, but uh, like Adrift, it's another movie which is based on a remarkable true story of survival. and among, his, among Kormakor's um, Icelandic credits is this movie called The Deep, um, which I also have not seen, but uh, just looking through his filmography caught my eye because it, it's about a fisherman who must survive in the ocean after his boat capsizes. So very similar to what we're dealing with here, and, and with that in mind, he seems like a natural choice to direct uh, this movie, which is based on the book Sky and Morning uh, by Tammy Ashcraft. Uh, For those who aren't aware, Adrift tells the story of Tammy, um, who's played in the movie by Shailene Woodley, and Richard, who's played in the movie by Sam Claflin. And they are two free spirits who meet and fall in love after a chance encounter in Tahiti. Uh, Richard is a sailor, and he and Tammy soon plan to sail the world together, but their plan is complicated when two old friends of Richard offer to pay him to sell their boat to San Diego while they go to London to deal with a personal matter. Richard agrees, and he and Tammy set off for California, not knowing what awaits them. And what does await them is a massive tropical storm, which badly damages their ship and leaves Richard severely injured. Stranded together at sea, the two must work together to survive, even as things seem to grow more and more desperate. Uh, now, Scott, I don't know about you, but I actually wasn't even aware of this movie until I saw the trailer, um, before Infinity War, I believe it was. Um, but I have to say that I had pretty high expectations going into it, um, because I thought that the trailers, um, looked really good. Um, I like movies of this type, like a couple of years ago, we had the Shallows, which is a, uh, another similar type movie to this, and I, am a big fan of the Shallows,
2: um, And I'm also a big fan of Shailene Woodley. Was that Um, with Blake Lively? Was that The Shallows with Blake Lively? Yeah, with Blake Lively. And
1: I'm a big fan of Shailene Woodley, so I thought this looked like a home run to me. Uh Um, But before we get further into my thoughts on whether or not this movie uh, met my expectations, uh, I'd like to hear what your general impressions are of
2: Adrift. Yeah, absolutely. So Adrift, for me, I think I'm like you. I don't really remember the first time this movie came across my radar, but... I feel pretty comfortable saying it, it was when I saw the trailer before Infinity War. I don't remember remember it before that, and it definitely wasn't on my radar like early on in the year. Right. And like you, I'm a I'm a big Shailene Woodley fan. I I know a lot of people might have been familiar with her from being on it was the ABC Family show, yeah, the Secret Life of the American Teenager. Right. I never watched that show, but I came across I, I watched her for the first time in The Spectacular Now and was um, you yeah. uh, instantly captivated by her performance in that. And coming into a drift, like you, it reminded me of several other films. Although what came to my mind was All Is Lost. The Ro- was it Robert Red- of course, yeah. Robert Redford? Robert Redford. Uh, because I think that this movie, well, well, maybe we'll talk about this, but I think this movie really tries to riff hard on some of the themes in that in that film. Of course, of course, Robert Redford is alone; he's the only actor in that movie, so it's a little bit different. But I think that it, it's a very similar uh, vibe to me. Granted, I, I haven't seen The Shallows, so maybe it would also resonate with me what you've described. But for me, adrift, I, I didn't know what to expect. Like I already mentioned, Shailene, I'm a big fan of Shailene Woodley, I uh, pretty much at this point always expect good things from her. Between the Spectacular Now and then Big Little Lies, uh, of uh, last year, year before, and unfortunately, yeah, I guess I, I, I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with Sam Claflin, and I, I haven't bothered to look what else he's done. But this movie, just for the for vast parts of it, um. I'd even say maybe like three quarters to four fifths of this movie. I just like really wasn't feeling it. It didn't vibe with me very much. I thought like this movie like should have been, in my opinion, a pretty like emotionally overwhelming movie. And it just wasn't. I just didn't feel much for a lot of this film. In the last, so in the last, which we'll get to I'm sure at the end, but in the last 10 to 15 minutes, uh, things changed a little bit and I thought that it really started to, hit home and resonate with me more at the very end. But for, you know, 80 to 90 of the 95-minute runtime, I was just left kind of sitting in my seat, like, not really sure what to feel and knowing that I should be feeling something, but I wasn't. And part of that was because the narrative structure of this film kind of was constantly plucking me out of the moment. Part of it was because like, just the story isn't particularly inspiring. Like, even the like like the pre-storm aspect of the story, which will, I'm sure we'll break down more specifically later. So, like, things that happen before they go through the hurricane is, like, one aspect of is, is, like, one part of the film, and it constantly flips back and forth between that and then Shailene Woodley and Sam Claflin dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Raymond, I believe, is, is what it was. And, for me, the switching back and forth most of the time didn't work. I mean, granted, I think it also would have been difficult to go straight through this film without, like, any sort of breaks either. I just think there's, like, maybe not a good way to present the story. And part of it, because it's like, the... Especially the pre-storm story is just, like, like, as cliche as it possibly could be. And there's, like, there's nothing original about it. There's nothing, like, interesting about the story either. It's like, all right, two people randomly meet. They fall in love. And they're just gonna, like, go on a ship. And, like, even the parts that, like, could be interesting... Which, like, aren't spoilers, I don't think, but, like, the aspect of Tammy, played by Shane Lee Woodley, like, Tammy's family situation back in California, like, they just managed to not make that interesting at all, and, like, that is the most interesting part of her, like, background, and yet it kind of just glosses over this part, and I'm not sure, like, what they would have been able to make of it anyway, but it was still, to me, the most interesting part of her character, and it's just, like, never really discussed, and it never comes up after the storm. Uh, so, I mean, that's an example. I know I'm, I feel like I'm kind of rambling on here, but basically, to kind of sum things up, I find the narrative to be really uninspiring. With that being said, I do think that the last, like, five to ten minutes really hit it for me, and, like, what I felt like I should have been feeling the whole time, I really felt at the end. So I I will give it credit for that. Maybe your experience was different, and I'm sure you'll get into it in a second. And then, as meh as I thought Sam Claflin was, I still thought Shanley Woodley was fantastic in this movie. I don't know if you, if you're gonna agree or disagree with me there, but I still think, her performance was really strong. It's just unfortunate that it's, like, surrounded by other things that aren't. And, unfortunately, I think that it probably isn't one of her best performances, but it's still the best thing about this movie.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I have to say I agree with a lot of what you were saying there. Um, I was extremely disappointed, um, after my high expectations for this movie, um, and, you know, like I said, I went into it with high expectations. I thought, you know, this is going to be, this looks like it could be really good. But the thing about true story movies, too, is that even if they, like the worst case scenario usually is that they play it really safe and it's just kind of mediocre, okay. Um, you, don't, you know, you don't see a lot of true story movies which are just bad because they at least have, I mean, they at least have an interesting story or otherwise this, you know, story wouldn't be put being put to film, um, but like this movie was borderline bad in my opinion. Um, I think that the exactly what you said about the narrative structure, like it, it completely takes you out of any sort of
2: emotional resonance that this movie might have, and um, which is why and, and, for me and, and, to 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 go on that point, which is why for me the yeah. end when they when they no longer can flip back and forth, it's like yeah. the last five or ten minutes. That's when it it finally hits me. The emotional weight of the movie finally hits me. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I'm not
1: opposed to this type of storytelling in another movie, but like, it didn't. It just didn't seem. It seemed so out of place in this movie. Like, I don't know what purpose they were trying to serve by, um, you know, flashing back and forth between what happens pre-storm and what happens after the storm. Um, like we don't even see the actual
2: shipwreck until the end. Yeah end of this movie Mm -hmm. um and well you see it the very first scene is actually the shipwreck well yeah actually the first scene i thought was spectacular
1: um the the first shot of this movie which by the way for me you like Shailene woodley's performance the best the best thing to me is the cinematography by robert richardson which is incredible um the first shot of this movie like i had chills like when it looks up basically it, it, we, it opens up on this floating standing water in the bottom of the boat and there's all this debris laying around in the water and mm-hmm. then there's shailene woodley's like raincoat is like face down and then all of a sudden she looks up and you realize oh there's shailene woodley like laying amidst this debris i thought it was like an amazing shot mm-hmm. um, and like there are tons of amazing shots in this movie like shortly after that there's one where she's standing on the deck as like the waves are just crashing behind her and like you can just see you know you see it going on and I mean like so all credit to Robert Richardson I mean he's been doing this for years he's got three Oscars he obviously knows what he's doing um, And but yeah I mean back to what um, we were talking about the, the narrative structure I mean I think it really takes you out of the moment um, and, and like I was saying I don't think it really serves a purpose except like I mean there is a twist in this movie and we won't get into what that is until later because that would be spoiler territory um but like i was thinking you know like are they doing this to sort of mask the twist until like the end of this movie but i still think that they could have just told the story in a linear fashion and the twist would have been been the exact same like they could have done the exact same thing with the twist um and you know you said that you thought maybe it wouldn't quite work with those with linear storytelling, I mean, to be honest, I think it
2: would have been fine. Um, and, in fact, well, I mean, it wouldn't would have been any worse than what it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that it might have even benefited it,
1: mm-hmm. because then maybe we could have spent more time on the shipwreck and on the aftermath of that, instead of trying to share time with what you as, you, as you rightfully pointed out, I think is is a very uninspiring romance between these two people. Like, there were points in this movie where I was like, am I watching a Nicholas Sparks movie right now? Um, because yeah. I mean, the setting of it, the way these characters interact, like Sam Claflin's character barely has a line in this movie that is not totally cheesy and, like, made me want to roll my eyes. Um, and, I
2: mean, so... so yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's really unfortunate, um, because yeah. I think... It's, like, actually amazing how one-dimensional they make his character. I know, yeah. Um, and, you know, like you said, the
1: they they don't go into the story... I mean, like, we don't know who these people are. Like, we know superficial details about their backstories. But, and, I mean, we've said this in movies before, like, how you can't just say, Oh, my mom died, or, you know, my
2: mom... Committed suicide when I was seven. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, in the case of Sam Clamman's character in this movie, that's what happens. But you can't just say that, like, that's not... It's a throwaway line. It's it's literally a throwaway line in this movie.
1: Well, I mean, that's not... Yeah, well, it
2: is, yeah, and that's... that's And it shouldn't be. Like, that
1: doesn't give your character another dimension just because you say that, like, this, here's something that happened in my past. Like, you have to... It has to be more nuanced than that. Like, you have to show... How this event is affecting their life going forward, or something like that. Um, and even with Shailene Woodley's character, who does have, you know, as you pointed out, a little more backstory, um, there were times when I just like I didn't understand the motivations of this character. I mean, there's a scene where they're sitting on the boat, and she like they've been at adrift for a, a large amount of time at this point, point. and she basically says to him, he he says to her like, "Oh, I wish you'd never met me." And then she goes on this little speech and says like. There's nowhere I'd rather be
2: than right here. I wouldn't trade it. Like, I wouldn't trade this for anything, is what she right, said. exactly, yeah. yeah. Like,
1: and I'm like, really? Are, like, are you serious right now? Like, you, you're telling me you wouldn't rather be on land and, like, have this ditch this, this guy. Like, and, like, but at least you would have your life or whatever. Like, I mean, I don't know. It just, I, I was sitting there like, I, I feel like we didn't get enough about this character for me to be like, okay, yeah, I understand why she's saying that. Like, it, it, it just seemed like really... I mean, it was really cliche, really cheesy line, and it just didn't make sense, like, considering the plight that these characters were in at that point in the movie. Um, You know, I do think that maybe the ending
2: is, like, you know, it it improves a little bit, like... It also, um, yeah, I mean, I know we're... uh, Maybe it's a little frustrating for listeners because we're dancing around the ending right now, but I think the ending does kind of justify some of the things that I was, like, really confused about in terms of the post-Storm narrative. And why don't I mean let's let's maybe talk more about that when we get around to talking about when we go when we talk full spoilers, but I, I think that some things that I was really frustrated with during the movie were I, I felt a little bit better about by the end because of that. Or at least I felt like I understood more why something happened, even though I was like, This doesn't make much sense to me, or like this this decision in terms of this character saying something or you know, in insert You know, directorial or filmmaking decision didn't make sense, and I think some of it made more sense at the end, which doesn't necessarily give it an excuse because I still think it's like not. It's like even even the end isn't something that's like effectively delivered. I think, but Mm -hmm. that that that's just to your point. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that maybe there are
1: details like in the interactions between these characters. Yep. uh, That maybe make more sense after the you know the reveal, but. I still think that the overarching problem of the, the narrative uh, really sucking all the suspense and tension out of this movie mm-hmm. um, like is still there is still present like I don't think the the ending really does away with that and I mean I think it's a shame because you look I mean again to bring back the shallows like that was a movie that just told its story in a very linear fashion um, and like was incredibly suspenseful was incredibly Tense. Like we felt like we were right there on the rock with Blake Lively's character the whole movie, um, and you know going through exactly what everything that she was going through, um, and I didn't get the sense of that um, in this movie just because it was like oh for five minutes we're on the ship, but no now we're back in there you know
2: courting each other. Yeah, um, that was so. That's but, one of the things for me is that like that's why I'm hesitant to say it should have been a linear story path because I think it, I think I agree with you that it would have been fine for it to have been that. But my concern is just, like, it's not that it it branched the narrative or like, and, like, flipped back and forth. It's that it just did it so quickly and so often. It just yeah. seemed, like, unnecessarily rapid switching back and forth.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think we'll, maybe we'll get into that a little bit more um, in a little bit. But before we do that, um, let's talk about the performances. Is that something that you yep. touched on in what you said? Um, so... I mean, you know, both of these characters are
2: on screen for pretty much the whole movie, so... Yeah, I mean, they're, I mean, can, they're like one or two other characters. Individually, you can. If you want to talk about the performances in tandem, that's fine, too. Sure. Yeah, so, I mean, for me, I mean, Shailene Woodley, hands down, is, like, the star of this movie in terms of the acting forms. I mean, there aren't that many, right? There's, like, five characters in this movie altogether. Yeah. There's, like, the Shailene Woodley's friend at the beginning, and, and then, then... the couple. And then the couple. That, that's, like, the only yeah. other characters in this film. Yeah. And so it's really, it comes down to Shailene Woodley and Sam Claflin. I think Shailene Woodley, one, has a little bit more to work with than Sam Claflin does, but I also just think that like, she's head and shoulders a better actress than he is an actor. And I think that comes out pretty clearly. And you see the opening, like, for example, the opening shot that you're talking about with her, not only is the cinematography amazing, but I also think, like, the, like, she really convinces me of the desperation that she's feeling. Uh, in those moments and you know if we fast forward to the end when the kind of the the narrative starts to unravel and and you begin to understand everything a little bit more she really does a convincing job in those moments too and I I just really as much as this film tried to disconnect me at times from it from the from it uh, through its narrative switching back and forth I think Shailene Woodley always did at least to some degree managed to pull me back in Whereas I didn't feel that way about Sam Claflin, although like you said, they almost sh- they share the screen almost the entire time. There's very rare moments where they're not on the screen together. But I was, you know, in, in if if a certain moment panned away or, or something else was happening, I, I never was like wanting to get back to Sam Claflin if that made sense. And, and I was always interested in what else Shailene Woodley was going to do during the movie and her character, her performance. Uh, was a strong one, and, and, and kind of like I've been alluding to, just to say explicitly, uh, Sam Claflin, I don't think he was bad in this movie. I think he had less to work with. We've already talked about the one-dimensionality of his character, so to speak. And I think that, I mean, when you only have cheesy, cliche lines to deliver, you can only do so much with them. And I think that he was, unfortunately, limited by that. And obviously, for those who haven't seen the trailers, but like, if you take the, pre, the pre-storm narrative and the post-storm narrative... Part of it in the post-storm, he's just lying on the boat because he's like, just, yeah. because his leg is broken, like he can't do anything. So he's not. He's not so at like that point. Broken really recently, I oh yeah, there were some audible gasps in my movie theater when, yeah, when there they were showed as well, it. Right? Um. Anyway, he yeah. So he's not even really like he's voice acting essentially for yeah. for, for the you know the the post-storm part of this movie and. I mean there's still a lot that a person can do with voice acting. I mean people win voice acting awards all the time every single year. Animated movies, there's some fantastic performances. And but but it just limits what he's able to do, especially when you see that it's a live action film and he's just lying there and having to express things through his voice and through his facial expressions, which, you know, even that are somewhat limited in this movie because of, you know, the effect that the sun is supposed to be taking on, you know, his skin and things like that. So, the the makeup done there it, I guess, helped helped out the performance. But it it, it was just tough for him, I think. It was tough for Sam Claflin to really... If he has true uh, acting talent, this wasn't a movie where he was going to be able to show that off.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess I agree. Um, I mean, the character for me was just so poorly written, poorly
2: developed, like, yep. it's almost hard to separate the character and the performance in my head, but also oh, for sure. what you're saying about that. Absolutely. Theirs. I'm trying to be fair to him. <laughs> you yeah, know. exactly. I know what you're saying of, there's only so much that he can do with, you know, what he's given. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I thought, and the it's probably It's probably why Miles Teller didn't agree to do this film, because like, he was the one originally that was supposed to be in this role. Really? Oh, I would have watched the crap out of that, but, um- yep i mean that was would have been the spectacular now part two um, well you know, you know they've been in like four films together right like three or four films yeah all the divergent movies
1: they were in together yeah
2: he played the brother in those I mean. right I forgot but, about
1: that. Um, but for yeah but as for his performance i mean another thing about his character too is that he, this character is like the perfect human being like we don't really see any sort of faults that this character has um he just, like, he always says the right thing. He always does the right thing. He's just like this, you know, he's like this perfect person that just comes along and sweeps Shailene Woodley off, her, off of her feet, um, which is just, you know, frankly not realistic as much as, you know, romantics at heart are going to want to watch this movie and say, oh, I want to, I, I just have to find my Richard. Um, I don't think
2: you're going to find your Richard. Um, I mean, what's, what's crazy about this is that that's totally their intention. And like I didn't, I didn't even. It didn't even have that effect on me. I'm just like, yeah. yeah, like okay, he's a perfect guy. I guess I get why Shailene Woodley is like, or like Tammy is falling in love with him. But like, I I wasn't even left feeling like, oh, I want to find someone <laughs> like Richard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this role could have been played by literally anybody, um, in the
1: exact same way that Tim Clapham played it. But and then as for Shailene Woodley's performance, like, I think that it is good in the Post-storm narrative, like I think, you know, yeah. what she's asked to do there is is not easy, and I think that she does it very well. Yep. Uh, you know, in the in the way that like a Robert Redford or a Blake Lively, you know, has done in the that we've mentioned. Yep. Um, but in pre-storm narrative, you know, I again, I didn't think her character really did much for me. Like I, in fact, I, I at times I just it seemed like she was just playing her same character from the
2: Spectacular Now. Yeah, so th- that's a good point, actually. I mean, when I was thinking about, like, this, when I was thinking and talking about her performance, I was kind of thinking the post-Storm and, and had forget- and wasn't even thinking about the pre-Storm. I think that's a really good caveat to make about that, because there's nothing, I mean, like, I can't emphasize that, like, there's literally nothing interesting about the pre-Storm narrative. Yeah, um, and, you know, it, it's hard when they're working off
1: of a true story, um, but surely these people were more interesting in real life than they were in this movie. Like, I have to hope so. And even if they aren't, like, maybe that's an area where you can take a little more creative license um, as a writer. But, um, but yeah, so uh, the pre-storm narrative th- just didn't work at all for me. Like I said, it really felt like a Nicholas Sparks story. Um, the post-storm stuff, I think, is a little bit better um, because, it, because of, I mean, the visuals really, I think, immerse you in it for as long as the movie actually focuses on the post-storm and, you know, doesn't jump back. Um, but, you know, overall, I was I was definitely underwhelmed, I would say, by both performances.
2: Um, and, and do you think that's just because of the high expectations you had of Shailene Woodley, or do you think that she actually, like, put in an underwhelming performance?
1: It's hard to say. Um, at, you know, for, for Shailene Woodley, it's probably that... It's probably more my expectations being tempered a little bit, okay. um... Because, like I said, I think she does the post-Storm stuff really well, Um, which is, I mean, you know, frankly, I expected that most of this movie was going to be, like, the survival story. Like, I didn't, I I really didn't expect
2: that, like, almost half the movie was going to be devoted to their romance. Agreed. Um, It surprised me how much time was spent on it.
1: Yeah, so I wasn't even expecting to see, really, that level of Shailene Woodley's performance. Um, So... You know maybe that's why i'm coming down a little more negative on it but um yeah i, I think that she has definitely done better work and, and will do better work um
0: yeah she
1: does here um but now why don't we move on to talk about um you saw, you know you've sort of talked about the themes a little bit of this movie and i mean survival is something that it shares with a movie like all is lost um but then of course we also have love um in, in, the, in the romance between these two characters? Like, how did, how did you think that these themes were handled
2: in the movie? Yeah, so I think that our li- listeners might be able to intuit what I'm about to say, based on our conversations already, but I think that it handles the theme of, I mean, if he, as much as you can box in, I, I do think there are two parts of this, for for the, at least the love theme, right? There is the the pre-storm at, like, part of the movie, and then there's the post-storm part of the movie, where you see a different dimension of that theme. The pre-storm one is terrible. I mean, we already talked about it. I don't think we need to spend any more time um, talking about how un- like, how just we just didn't really feel. The two of us, at least, did not feel very much uh, with respect to like the love story that is taking place, the romance that is taking place before they set sail, before they hit Hurricane Raymond. But then after, I think that it, it really it shows another dimension of it. It shows another dimension of Shailene Woodley and, to some extent, Sam Claflin. Really trying, like really trying to not only survive because I think there these two themes in the post storm are baked together, but also a different kind of love uh, that we saw than, than what we saw in the first part. Or no, I shouldn't say first part of the movie, but the pre storm part of the movie because it's not the first part. Um, so I think that for the second part, I thought the themes were more interesting, and then also for me, why the second part, again the post storm part, not the second part, the post storm part is more interesting is because. You have this exploration of what these two characters, I think per, just because of the ability of Shalen Woodley versus like the disability of, of Sam, Cla- Sam Claflin and you know, the, the injuries that he sustained in the, in the storm, uh, it shows like what one person is willing to do, not only to save themselves or in some, in some cases it might even harm themselves, um, in order to not only survive, but to help this person that they love also survive. And I think that that is it was an exploration that worked better than the than the pre-storm exploration of these themes, or, or in particular the theme of love. And, and I thought that adding that second dimension of survival and, and what what people are willing to do, and or in particular I suppose what Tammy, what Shailene Woodley is willing to do, it made the, the the it made me think a little bit more. It made me appreciate a little bit more what was happening on the screen, whereas it did nothing for me in in the pre-storm narrative.
1: Yeah, well, so I'm, here's my thinking. I'm not, I won't beat up anymore on the pre-storm narrative because I think I've said my piece about why I don't think it works. Sure. Um, and and you know, consequently, why the theme of love isn't really well handled here. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as survival, like I think that and this will get a little bit deeper into like what I, my problem with the with the plot with, with the you know the yeah. interchanging narratives. Okay. But I think that I didn't get the true desperation that these characters are feeling because of the way that the narrative jumps back and forth and, and okay. you know as we've kind of said rips you out of the moment i mean we have these moments where um you, you know they they will jump back to the post storm narrative and we'll have a little title that says 18 days, adrift. days adrift 28 yeah. days adrift like however many days adrift they've been and well, first of all, not only does it, like, skip a huge amount of days. Like, it's jumping, like, ten days at a time, practically.
2: Um, yeah, especially toward, but, the, in- toward the end, it's, it's, it's skipping a lot of days. At the beginning, it's a little bit tighter, but... Yeah, but, like, that's the only way that we really know how long these characters... Like, my
1: legal writing professor always says, don't just tell me, show me, don't tell me, show me. And I think that that's what this movie should have done. But it just, it tends to say, oh, they've been adrift for 28 days... And then, you know, it showed, we, we see a scene, but it's not really, like, you don't feel the desperation, you don't feel like you've been adrift for 28 days with them, just because, you know, the movie is so jumpy and jumps around so much, um, and yeah. that was something that I thought that other movies, again, I'll come back to the shallows, just because I think it's a good um, comparison point, I mean, that movie takes place over, like, two or three days, um, whereas this movie takes place over, like,
2: forty something days. 41 days.
1: Yeah, but, like, I, the, the sense of desperation and the sense of, you know, if something doesn't happen quickly, this you know, they're going to die, um, was so much more palpable in The Shallows than it was in this movie. Um, and, you know, I think that, like, it's like what we're getting, basically, in this post-storm narrative is just snapshots of, the you know, the, the whole process. And I'm not saying I want them to go day by day and be like on day two we found no fish you know that, it doesn't have to be like a diary like that yeah but you know have a more prolonged sequence that really puts us in the shoes of these characters and lets us feel you know the desperation and, and you know lets us feel hey these people are gonna die if
2: something doesn't happen quickly yeah yeah um, and to your and to your point i think that's i think it's a really good one I, it's not something that i explicitly thought of until just now when you're talking about it But I can totally imagine, I agree that it might even be more, it might be more powerful if if they have something that that I'm thinking about, like, what I'm thinking about right now is a kind of montage of, or or, let me back up, I think some of the moments where I feel the most desperation uh, from them in in the post-Storm narrative is when Shailene Woodley's character is, like, just trying to figure out where exactly they are on the map, for example. And I can, like, imagine a montage of, like, it's almost like a, I don't even know how to describe it, but it'd be like a, like, picture, picture after picture of her just, like, each day trying to figure out where they are and, like, mapping on a map and, like, getting more and more, like, frustrated by, like, how not on, like, not linear their path is. So, you know, just something like that where you can see the day-by-day day progression in her frustration with, because I, I did at times feel her frustration with, like, either being unsure that she's, like, able to figure out exactly where they are in the in the Pacific Ocean, or, if the, if the current and the wind is just screwing with them so much that they can't track a straight path. Those are the yeah, moments that I, I felt were like the most anxiety, or it, most, it best conveyed to me the desperation, and that is saying something, because I think I agree with you for the most part that this film doesn't necessarily inject a lot of desperation into its viewers, but that's just an idea that I had just now. Yeah, and uh, to your point, the saying, along the same
1: lines like the scene where there's a ship that actually comes right by them um but doesn't rescue them but like even though Shailen woodley shoots off a couple of flares um you know the ship just keeps on going in fact it almost just like takes out their boat it comes so close to them
2: um i thought that was a hallucination i thought that was supposed to be a hallucination okay i don't know um but perhaps it
1: was um but yeah was a moment, regardless, that was a moment where I felt, yeah, you know, really desperate for these characters. Like, you know, here's exactly what they've been hoping for. Here's a boat coming by, and still nothing happens, yeah. Um, but another, I mean, another thing, another, I mean, and I don't know if this is something that goes along with the true story, really, but like, the supplies on the ship like I never really felt like they were in danger of like oh we're running out of food or anything I mean first of all they're actually killing fish or at least Shailene Woodley's character is killing fish um, to eat for food and then like they you know they have all they have it it seems like they have a a pretty good stockpile of food Um, yeah it's hard to tell at one point in the movie and like it's weird because you know when it's jumping between days it's like on one day she goes down and she finds peanut butter on another day she goes down and she finds a bunch of other cans of stuff. Yep. And I'm like, why aren't you going down and just pulling everything out? Like, why are you like,
2: oh well it's been nine days, let's go look if there's anything else downstairs. I agree. Um, that that was something that, like that really confused. that w- that that also really confused me. I didn't fully understand that and I didn't understand their food supply. Although I would say that like one one to go back to the desperation point, I think that like her sacrificing her like vegetarianism. For survival wasn't yeah, was a, was, a, a, was a big thing for me, and I appreciated that. But also, your I mean, your point that you made just now about how like twenty days deep or whatever in this, you're like still f- managing to find like new supplies on this ship that you didn't. I mean, like I get it's not their ship because it's their it's their sailboat. It's sorry, it's the couple sailboat that they're sailing to San Diego. So you're not super familiar with everything. But it's weird that only now you're like pulling out the couch cushions and seeing like the storage yeah. underneath. And, like, when you're
1: talking about survival, like, that's a huge thing. I mean, you know, we can, we can lament the plight that they're in at being stranded at sea, you know, with seemingly no hopes of rescue. But the fact of the matter is, if you got food and water, you're probably not going to die, at least, um, for a while. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's another thing that really goes towards the urgency of this movie, um, yep. like the, really the urgency of their situation. Uh, The -hmm. fact that we don't really get the sense that, oh, they're low on supplies. Like, you know, if they go another day without food, they're going to die. So, yeah, I mean, that's I think that probably is covers the the issue of survival. Um,
2: Sure. So since we've
1: danced around it a lot, why don't we just go ahead now and jump into the spoiler for this movie? Um, So if you haven't seen it and you're wanting to see it, um, you know, skip ahead about 20 minutes. Uh, or so. um, Just look at the time
2: codes. Look at the time codes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, look at the time codes. Even better. Um, Because we're going to talk about the spoiler now. Um, Yeah, so basically what we learn is that um, Shailene Woodley's character has been hallucinating since the shipwreck happens. And uh, Richard actually died. Um, when the, when the shipwreck happened and he has not been on the ship with her the entire
2: time. Yeah. So um, in the opening scene of the movie, we actually see him die. It's like actually the first thing you see in the movie. Mm-hmm. Cause you see his body float to the bottom of the, like his head hits the, whatever the, the mast, I guess. I'm not even sure which it is. And, yeah, and his we body. Later. Yeah. And when we see the full thing and we understand, oh, that's what I saw at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And he like, and his body just floats to the bottom of the ocean. And I thought that was, I was so, I was really confused, because I also thought, like, oh, like, in the opening scene, I was, I was like, wow, that's weird. Like, how is that, well, one, how is that jacket floating to the bottom of the ocean if there's not anything in it? And so I was, like, kind of suspicious from the beginning, but then I, like, forgot about it, whatever. I was like, okay, fine, like, he survived, cool. I don't know how he survived, but he survived. And when it finally, when the reveal finally hit at the end, when, when you see her, finally say essentially say goodbye to the hallucin like when she re- i guess she realized she was hallucinating or or something like that it's, it's the point in the movie basically where we see the shipwreck happen in the pre-wreck narrative like we we yeah. get up to the point where the actual wreck happens yeah it's and the end of the movie after we see that yeah no i was just, just saying like cool. I, I was trying i was more just theorizing one of the things that i was kind of wondering is like when did she realize she was hallucinating him or like did she know all along? Is something that was like I don't know if it like the movie needs to explain it but I'm curious. I'm curious. And anyway, so like she sees that and I think the emotional that and that's kind of when the emotional weight of the film kind of started to hit me cuz like I like I mentioned a while ago. This movie really didn't like I didn't connect with this movie on an emotional level for the first 80 plus minutes of it. And then in the last 5 to 10 like it just really I wouldn't say it overwhelmed me, but it really hit me when she was like, and and I think this kind of speaks back to like the theme of love again. If we're just tying that back into what we were just talking about, like she's finally beginning to understand like I can't, I can't save the two of us. Like San, like, uh, what his Richard is gone, and I have to accept that. And I remember seeing like the in the in the credits, there's like the the news article titles or whatever, and one of them's like. Uh, it was some, some, some alluding to the fact that like a voice kept me going or like and and I think that that speaks to the love narrative there where it's like you know the the power of love may have been what got her through some of the days on the ship. It may also explain you know how she was able to make all these personal sacrifices. You know she sacrificed her vegetarianism to you know for in some ways for Richard. If you if you're like watching the movie plot arc, right? You know she sacrifices you know, I don't even know how to describe it, but like, but I feel like she's like making a lot of sacrifices during this trip or like, sorry, during like while they're adrift or while she's adrift, I should say, uh, for Richard, even though he's not there, he's dead. Whether or not she knows he's dead at that point or not, it's unclear. But I thought that that, the weight of that really hit me. And then the weight when she, they, when she finally comes across another boat, when she has land in sight and she's able to call them like, that's a point in the mood. And they ask like, are you okay and like, are you alone? Like stuff like that. And like another—that was another point in the movie that where like the emotional weight of the film really hit me. And and I was thinking towards like even the last couple scenes when she's revisiting—is it the Maya Laga? I can't remember the name of the of Richard's boat. But I don't either, yeah, 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 yeah. So, some name, some name like that. And you know, she's looking at the pictures and really thinking back to the time they—the relatively brief time they had spent together. Uh, the I think the year was like 1983, maybe something like that, when the when this was set, and it, the, as brief as that time was, and, and maybe that's a disconnect in the film, and that maybe that's a shortcoming of the film, and it is a true story nevertheless, I think that that was another moment that was really powerful, when, you know, all those times on the boat when they were trying to survive, I didn't feel anything, but when, after the fact, she sits down and she has to process those emotions, those emotions finally hit me too, and I don't know if that was your experience with the film, but at the end it it kind of took a turn in direction with the plot twist and carried me through the rest of the film feeling what i felt like i should have been feeling for the previous hour and 15 minutes yeah i mean
1: so first of all i'll say i i also share your confusion about sort of her realization of when does when exactly does she realize that she's hallucinating like i understand in the overarching structure of the movie oh she realizes when the two narratives collide with each other but like when does she actually know? Does she know the entire time that Richard isn't actually there? Um, and so I didn't – That I thought that that really hurt um, the, the effect of this twist because I'm just thinking about it. Like I feel like if they had told a linear story, they could have done this twist so much more effectively. Like you're talking about the moment – um, when the ship finally rescues her, and you know they're asking, "Are you okay? Are you alone?" Imagine if we have a linear story, uh, and we get to that moment in the movie, and as they ask her, "Are you alone? Are you okay?" or whatever, that's when she realizes she's been hallucinating the whole time, and that Richard's not actually there.
2: I agree. Um, yeah, I think that's a much more powerful way. Exactly. Than- I, I think that, like, you know, and you know,
1: again, I don't know how faithful they had to be to the um, true story, you know, you know, maybe they felt like they had to, uh, abide by what the book went. And I mean, I don't, I, I don't really know what the book says. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's, that's one side of it. Like, I feel like they could have done, used this twist so much more effectively. And, uh, if they had just told a linear story and like, could have had a really powerful moment where, oh, she's being rescued, but also she's realizing that Richard is actually not there. Like that, I feel like that, uh, Collision of emotions would have provided for a, like a much more bittersweet, like an effective moment at that point in the movie. But the other side, like, and this is probably my hottest take on the movie, um, I feel like maybe they shouldn't have even had the twist, and maybe we should have, you know, had a linear narrative. Richard dies, and the rest of the movie is Caitlin Woodley trying to survive on her own. And I think that the only reason. That we have this, you know, other than maybe, you know, the fact that I'm sure that in real life, this is probably based on some, you know, true hallucinations that she had. Um, I feel like uh, they shoehorned this in a little bit because they have, because it is like a romance and because love, as we have talked about, is one of the major themes in the movie. So they kept him in this movie for as long as they could so that we could see, the, you know, the relationship between the two of them or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I feel like they could have left him out. We could have had just Shanley Woodley trying to survive on the boat. And, you know, you talked about how, like, the, the news article says, oh, I heard his voice. I mean, I still think you could you could have done things to, like, have Richard there, like, have her still,
2: have him still. Or you could even make him clearly a hallucination. You could make him, like, clear from the beginning, clearly a hallucination. Yeah. Um, but, like, I didn't see any,
1: like, the twist didn't really grab me. Um, and, I mean, for another reason, because I don't think there's any really way to see it coming. I mean, you talked about at the beginning, the, you know, how we kind of see what happens to Richard. Um, but, like, the interactions between them, like, what in the post-Ret post, uh, narrative, like, I never once got the sense that Richard wasn't actually
2: there. Um, so I actually want to jump in here, because one yeah. thing – I actually disagree on this, because okay. I think that Richard's character – Post wreck and pre wreck are very different to me. Like there, like there were points in the movie, like specific lines that I, I can't particularly think of in this very moment, where I was like, "Wow, I really wouldn't expect Richard to say this." And I think a lot of it has, and like to me, that could be that could be one of two things, and maybe I'm giving the benefit of the doubt to uh, the writing for this film, um, but. I think what it could be is, one, it's an indication that this isn't Richard, and this is whatever construction of Richard that is that Shailene Woodley is hallucinating, or that Tammy, uh, the name of the character in the movie, or it could be the bad writing and just, like, poorly developed character, <laughs> which it very well might have been anyway. But my... There, like, there's, like, several lines where... I think mean, you mentioned one already where, like, I wish that you had never met me so that you wouldn't be in a situation. Like, I don't think Richard would ever say that. Like, the prereq Richard would ever say that. I don't think... The pre wreck Richard would be, would, would say, like, he said something to her, oh, like, we're not gonna make it, like, we're not gonna survive. And there's like the, there's an exchange between the two of them where she's like crying and saying, don't tell me that, like, tell, like, lie to me, we're going to be okay. Like, I don't think like Richard would say that. Like, there were just moments here and there where things that he says in the post wreck where I'm like, wow, this is like not consistent with the Richard that I feel like I've been getting to know in the pre wreck, uh, the pre wreck plot. Yeah, I, I definitely see where you're coming from there. Like I do
1: think that some of the, some of the more pessimistic like opinions that he voices in the post um, narrative aren't exactly consistent with what we get from him. And maybe, I mean, maybe this is a movie where if I went back and watched it a second time, I would pick up on things. You know, kind of like The Sixth Sense. Like, sure. you don't pick up on these things when you're watching. And so maybe that's a sign that maybe the twist was actually effective because all the clues were right there and I just wasn't picking up on them.
2: Um, somehow I don't feel like that's the case. I mean, by. I don't I don't feel that way either, even though I, I yeah. did just kind of defend it a little bit. But, I, don't, I mean, I personally don't feel that way. Yeah, but, I mean,
1: you know, that was just another reason for me why I feel like the twist... Didn't really work
2: or wasn't necessary. um, I totally agree to your point. I agree that like all the all the positive things that I talk about happening after the twist, like I I don't think the twist is what made it is what made it better. You know what I mean? Like it just it just so happened that like, all right, you finally understand what was going on, and so now that I understand, I can like I can emotionally experience this movie, Uh or you know exactly to your point, I think it's a really good one that like. There are at least there are other ways that would make more like more make the film more coherent, that do not take away from like the post twist unveiling. So like you're talking about with like a linear delivery or like a different delivery of the hallucination, like all those things, I think would still maintain the emo- like the emotional impact the movie had on me after the after the realization that Richard is a hallucination, but would make the film better, if <laughs> in like other aspects.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like I don't. I don't really see why they adopted this disjointed narrative like I feel like they could have just told a linear story and achieved probably an even more powerful effect um sure and I I mean maybe that's my ultimate criticism of the movie is that um not only does the does the narrative not
2: work but it just seems kind of unnecessary sure okay so with that um I think we've pretty thoroughly covered this movie we've we um, have beaten this very dead horse yes we have <laughs> much as the uh
1: storm in adrift uh slowly uh, wore down
2: uh, the hazania uh, our
1: characters yeah um yeah. so why don't we just move into the wrap-up now um what was your favorite scene or moment but perhaps moment is a little more appropriate for this movie because so of so much of it does seem like kind of cohesive. Well, that's not true. It doesn't seem cohesive. But,
2: it but, flows. You know, the, the the two parts of the film that we've talked about. Yeah, there's not there's not a lot of distinguishing like scenes in the post narrative. I agree. Yeah, I think that we're going to say the same thing here, but I think that the opening scene of the movie is the best one cuz unfortunately the movie peaks in its opening scene. Um for better or for worse. Like you said, even even the emotional impact of the end of the movie that i've talked about for me it's i still wouldn't say like that's the best scene i suspect that you're going to say the opening scene is yours i mean you talked about the cinematography you talked about the emotion that that is kind of portrayed by shailene woodley is acted out by shailene woodley in that opening scene to be different because we've already talked about the scene i will say that another scene that i've briefly mentioned or at least alluded to already is i really appreciated even though i wouldn't say it's like it's not i wouldn't say it's my favorite scene by any stretch but like i appreciated the scene after she's finally rescued she goes back to tahiti to to go on the on the boat and she sits down and she's you know she's she's looking at all the pictures on the wall uh, a couple a few of which are obviously include her and then she there it, this the it kind of seamlessly cuts toward the beach that they went to uh, i forget at what point in the movie but pretty early on i think it's like maybe their first time taking the sailboat out together and she like takes the ring off that he would given her, and takes the fl- the white petaled flower, and kind of just the sig- signifying obviously letting go of him. Um, and I appreciated that it was a it was a nice touch at the end of the movie. That was a scene that really emotionally hit me pretty hard, uh, which a lot of this movie I've already talked about did not. But that just to be a little bit different from what I suspect your favorite scene is going to be.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I did. I do think the opening scene is probably the best scene in the movie. Um, but since I already talked about it a little bit, I will go with a different moment. Sure. Um, and that is also towards the end of the movie. this is, It's a very small moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but personally, I really loved this uh, moment in the movie. And it was, you know, at a point where I was pretty much over this movie. Like, <laughs> you know, at the, at the very end, I was kind of like rolling my eyes most of the time. Um, but th- this one little moment, I really appreciated when Shailene Woodley is actually rescued, um, and she they put her on the, the ship, and they give her an apple, and she sits down and she eats the apple, and when she eats the apple, there's just like this amazing moment, because first of all, it's like, there's like this feeling of victory in her act of like eating the apple like because she's finally and it's a, it's a huge apple by the way um, and because she's finally been rescued like she's made it maybe Richard didn't make it with her but all this you know all these fears that she thought she was going to die out there she's not going to die here she is she's made it and she's got a nice apple and then like the, the crunch of the apple along is kind of along the same line like it's so like evocative and it, I feel like it, it it also did like portrays that victory that she feels and like uh sort of like uh, you know she's been completely brow beaten down but here's like this real authentic thing um that she's finally experiencing um and i don't know it, it, it was a really good moment for me like and, and because it, it really stood out from the rest of the movie um and also, you know, the, we, we see since we're in the same setting the whole time for the most part, we're, we're on the water, we're on the you know horizon or whatever, like the, the apple itself like stands out from the rest of the background, the landscape of the movie. Um, so it was just a small little touch that I appreciated.
2: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Okay, um, so let's get into our numbers now. I have a feeling it's not going to be terribly high, but um, what what would you give this movie out of ten? Four point eight. Yeah, I'm going with a four point five, mainly because of the cinematography. Um, honestly, I think even as bad as this movie I think is, I think the cinematography is Oscar worthy because
2: it's not it's not easy to only for one only for sh- one half of the film though. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's not easy to shoot scenes like this,
1: um, but and movies like this, you know, of someone lost at sea and all of this. Um, but I think that um, Robert Richardson does an incredibly good job, and for those few moments, for the, for those moments when we actually are in the post shipwreck narrative, um, like they, it, it he tries to make it as evocative as possible. Um, before he pulls the before the story pulls us out of the the narrative again Um, so 4.5 go watch the shallows instead that's my ultimate uh, comment on this movie okay with that we are going to take a short break now um, and when we come back we will have our discussion topic for the week the best movie of 1997 um, as well as some news items we'll be right back Episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, now, Scott, on our last episode, we deviated from the theme we had been using for our discussion topics um, for, for a little uh, detour. Uh, but this week, we're going to get back into that
2: theme. Would you like to remind our listeners what exactly that theme is? Absolutely. So we know that now our discussion topics, uh, you know, up to before, like maybe two or three episodes ago, we had been pretty creative. You spent a lot of time thinking about, you know... You know, timely thing like timely discussion topics for us to talk about. I mean, we talked about, you know, best third movie in a franchise because Avengers: Infinity Wars is the third. Like the- very deep cuts, but to take a little bit of pressure off you, we, we decided to go with a more longer running, uh, longer running discussion topic series, and that was basically us choosing our favorite movies from each of the years that we've been alive. So we were both born in 1995. Our first time doing this discussion topic, we did our favorite movies from 1995, which, correct me if I'm wrong, mine was 7, and yours was Clueless, and then right. the next time we did 1996, and we both said Fargo, and now, we took, a, like you said, we took a break last week, and now we're back. We're doing the year 1997, a year full of quite a few good movies, and to get us started, I think we both have, of course, our favorite movie from that year, but we also have honorable mentions as well, so why don't you start by giving us our, your honorable mention for 1997? Yeah, so my honorable mention, and this is a movie which...
1: I mean, you know, I think when when we talk about these honorable mentions, there's a sense that, oh, this is our number two on the list. And I don't
2: know if I would necessarily say that this is my number, even my number two from the year. I I agree. I agree with this, because this is actually true of all my honorable mentions. Actually, It's just a movie that I
1: want to make a mention of, because I think it is very good, and I think it's a movie that not a lot of people know about, or even if they saw this movie... Like if they saw something about this movie, they wouldn't think, "Oh, I bet that's really good." Um, and that is a movie called The Rainmaker, um, based on the novel by John Grisham. Of course, John Grisham's novels have been adapted uh, for have been adapted for into many movies, uh, particularly in the '90s. Um, some of them are good. Uh, I think that The Firm and uh, A Time to Kill are also excellent entries. Um, some of them are not so good, like The Client, uh, The Chamber, The Runaway Jury. Not great movies, but. For me, The Rainmaker is clearly the best of John Grisham's uh, best adaptation of John Grisham's work to be put on screen. Um, it is the story of uh, Rudy Baylor, who is a young law student at the University of Memphis Law School, um, where John Grisham himself went, I believe. Uh, and Rudy is played by Matt Damon in the movie, um, and he, as as part of a uh, his uh, a clinic that he's working on through the law school. Um, he gets a client, um, the Black family, um, the mother of whom is played by Mary Kate Place, and they have a son um, who has leukemia, and the insurance company basically has denied uh, their claim for a bone marrow transplant for really arbitrary reason, saying basically saying that he had a pre-existing condition which is not true like his leukemia was only contracted after uh, they, they got the policy um, and so Rudy decides to sue the insurance company it's a big insurance company uh, and uh, you know this is his first case as a rookie lawyer and he's taking on a big insurance company um, and this movie well first of all has an incredible cast um, so John Voigt plays the uh, lawyer for the insurance company, uh, Danny DeVito, um, has a great part as Rudy's sort of sidekick in the movie. He's, um, this, uh, he's, he's really a paralegal. His name is, his name is Dick Shiflet, and he works in the same office, um, where Rudy, um, it basically, uh, is hired by this really sleazy lawyer named Bruiser Stone, who's also played it by uh, in a great performance by Mickey Rourke. Um, and Deck works at this office, and he's kind of just like the office lackey who he's, he's who's tried to take the bar exam three times and failed it every time. Um, so he provides sort of comic relief, but it's it's a it's a more well-rounded character than that. And then of course we also have an, a side narrative where Rudy. Um, is romancing this battered widow played by claire danes who is in the hospital um for being abused by uh her her uh husband who's a um baseball player who is just a crazy drunk um so he's trying to protect her from that Uh, i like how leisurely paced the story is because so many of John Grisham's movies are like, we're focused on one case, like the A Time to Kill, we're focused on this Carly Haley case the entire time, Um, and you know, everything is about that one case, but this feels more like this is, we're just, we're going through Rudy's life. I mean, we have, you know, he's dealing with these cases, he's dealing with this case, he's dealing with this insurance company case, he's also dealing with this old lady, um, played by Teresa Wright, who's another one of his clients that wants to give all of her money to a TV preacher. Um, we have again the Claire Danes narrative so there's really a lot more going on here than just this one case like it's not so narrowly focused Um, and you know the case itself is actually interesting like there's some courtroom scenes it may not sound like the most interesting thing because it's like an insurance fraud case basically Um, but the movie actually puts a lot of emotion in it especially with the fact that this character has leukemia and I just think it's a great story um, great Uh, acting obviously a very capable cast and it it weaves all these narratives together really well and perhaps that's not surprising considering the director of the movie this is one of the reasons why I'm surprised this movie doesn't get more acknowledgement. The director of the movie is Francis Ford Coppola um, who of course directed a little movie called The Godfather Um, in in addition to some other um, films which are rightfully considered to be classics um, you know kind of probably a little bit of a strange movie for him to direct but I think that his expertise clearly shows here. Um, and if you're a fan of um, lawyer movies, even if you're not a fan of lawyer movies, that, that's that's one of the points that I was getting at, really, is I think it just tells a very human story. Like, even if even if you're not really fully entrenched in the legal world, that's really only part of the story. Um, and I think that Matt Damon does a great job in the lead role as well. So, yeah, The Rainmaker.
2: Yeah, I think I'm a big fan of A Time to Kill. I actually haven't seen The Rainmaker. Um Gotta check it out. Yeah, I'm gonna need to. So for my honorable mention, I'm going with uh, a different kind of film than we normally talk about. I don't think we've yet talked about any animated features on this podcast, at least not at any length. Am I am I missing an obvious one that we've talked about? I don't know. But uh, well, we haven't reviewed one. You know, like we talked about Toy Story when we, when we that's went through true. 1995. That's true. That is a good point. Uh, but yeah, so I'm... I'm Carrying the banner for animated films here And I'm going with uh, Princess Mononoke As my honorable mention uh, Directed, produced, etc By, or sorry, I should say Produced by Studio Ghibli And uh, Tojiyo Suzuki But directed by the, I think Fair to say, infamous Hayao Miyazaki Who only recently I I don't know if infamous makes it sound Controversial. Um, that, that's a, that's actually famous. a good point. He, the he famed a director. Yeah, the renowned name. Hayao Miyazaki. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, only only the most positive connotations can come with Miyazaki's name when it's attached to animate, like, you know, anime and Japanese feature films that are animated, and. Uh, so he is the greatest animation director. Definitely in the debate. I'd have to sit down and think about whether there are any other ones that I'd want to throw in there, but for sure. I mean, his his volume of work, which spans you know, Castle in the Sky, Kiki's Delivery Service, My Neighbor Totoro, uh, Princess Mononoke, and then, of course, what many consider his, his best, uh, Spirited Away. He's just an, an incredible director. There's also The Wind Rises, which is his last film that he did before he retired. But anyway, uh, Princess Mononoke came out in 1997 in the summer. I'm not sure if it was released in... America in 1997. In fact, I think it actually might not have come out until 1999 in America, but it was it, it was a 1997 movie. Uh, the English version has Billy Crudup and Claire Dane, so another Claire Dane shout out there. Um, hey. Yeah, and then I'm trying to think, who else? Billy Bob Thornton, I'm pretty sure, voices someone in this movie. Gillian Anderson, I'm, I'm also pretty sure, is the voice of, of a character in this movie. So a lot of, for the English version, you know, for, for listeners of this podcast... Some very recognizable voices, some very recognizable names. Also, I'm totally done. Like We talked about Isle of Dogs. That's an animated movie. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't believe we forgot that one. <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, yeah, so I think a very recognizable mo- uh, uh, names in this film for English voice, voice acting here. And it, it's just a... It's not his favorite... It's definitely not my favorite Miyazaki that would have to go to, to either Kiki's Delivery Service or Spirited Away. But a movie worth mentioning just because I'm not sure if if Miyazaki will ever come up in another one of these, and, and Mononoke is one of is a really good movie and one of, one of his earlier pre Spirited Away uh, works of, of film, and I thought it just worth mentioning here. Yeah, I'm ashamed to say
1: that Miyazaki's movies are a big hole in my. Um Movie
2: experience. I've not actually ever seen one of his movies. Um, not even one. So Oof, wow. Not, okay. not a single one. I, yeah, no, I know. Like I say, I'm ashamed to
1: admit that because he is considered by many to be the master of animation. But your praise for Princess Mononoke and many others' praise for you know his other films um, only reinforce uh, my my want and my need to see
2: um, some some of his uh, classic films. Absolutely. Well, we can we can try to fix that. All right. So, I think time to to discuss our favorite movies from 1997. Now that we have the honorable mentions out of the way. Scott, what's your favorite movie from 1997? Yeah, I have to say this was a fairly easy
1: choice for me. Um there is a, definitely one movie which stands above the rest of the pack um, for me for uh, in terms of uh, the, the movies from 1997, which I have seen. Um, and, you know, I, this is, again, another movie that has stood the test of time, um, and I think a lot of people probably would also choose this as the, uh, their, one of their top favorite movies from this year, um, if not their favorite. And that is the movie L.A. Confidential, directed by Curtis Hanson, um, and based on a novel by James Elroy, um, it is a sprawling epic tale of uh, the LAPD in, I believe, the 1920s um,
2: with, a, with a great cast. Um, 1950s. Guy, sorry? Yeah, uh, the 1950s. Not the 19, yeah, yep. sorry. Um,
1: 1950s LAPD. Um, and we have a, an amazing cast of, of three cops. Um, first of all, Guy Pierce, who plays. It's sort of this uh, extremely straight laced, by the numbers cop. Uh, he wants to, yeah, he wants to just do everything by the book. Um, he wants to be like the media darling of like the what an ideal police officer should be. Um, however, in 1950s LA, um, the police were extremely corrupt, and that's part of the backdrop of this movie. So Guy Pierce's character doesn't really fit in with the rest of his contemporaries, and he especially doesn't fit in with Bud White. Um, who's played in one of his uh, early roles, actually, by Russell Crowe. Uh, he, he gives a, a very uh, good performance as... He's, he's basically the antithesis of Guy Pierce's character. Russell Crowe plays uh, Bud White, um, who is... He's, he's a loose cannon, basically. He, you know, beats up suspects. He will do whatever it takes. He won't follow protocol. He'll do whatever it takes to get his conviction and to get his face on the news. Um, and we have Kevin Spacey... Um, as Jack Vincennes who he's also pretty corrupt um, and he uh, doesn't, he condones the tactics that Russell Crowe uses and at the same time he's feeding all of this information um, to here he is again, Danny DeVito um, who plays uh, this tabloid journalist um, and and so Kevin Spacey's character is kind of his inside source um, in the department and it's really just about how these characters get wrapped up in police corruption, in Hollywood, in murder, um, and all other sorts of uh, seamy things going on in 1950s L.A., um, and the violence and um, drama that results from that. We also have Kim Basinger, who actually did win an Oscar for this movie. Um, she plays a, a prostitute who um, has... Her, her her shtick is that she, she makes herself up to look like Veronica Lake, and actually guy pierce and russell crowe's characters both end up falling for her in this movie um so she obviously gives a great performance as well um and it, it's just a it's just an epic like like i said epic um crime drama uh, that has rarely been matched um since then it, it, it belongs alongside crime dramas like heat and goodfellas and, and carlito's way and you know some of these some of these great crime dramas when you Especially from the '90s, when you think of what are some great crime dramas
2: from the '90s? Um, but there's Chinatown, is, Maltese Falcon. Yeah, you, um,
1: you know there are so so many, and um, this this movie belongs
2: right up there in my opinion. Yeah, it's a good movie. Uh, Kevin Spacey coming up for the second time, and in, th- in our three discussion topics so far, but he had he had, you know he had, unfortunately he was he was a part of some really really good films in the '90s, and it may not yeah. be the last time he comes up. Probably not. Oh, well, alas. Good movie. L.A. Confidential is a good movie, though. All right. So my favorite and, film... And, oh, sorry, I should add, it's on Netflix as well, so check it out. All the more reason. There's no excuse that people out there don't watch it, unless, of course, you don't have a Netflix <clears> account, which, in which case, you should steal someone's login information and watch it yourself. <laughs> but we movie. don't condone that, so don't do that. Um, yes. Cool. So my favorite film, I think, if, it, if it's not going to be L.A. Confidential, which is a good movie, it has to be kind of what I think as the... The movie maybe everyone thinks about, uh, even if you don't realize it's a 1997 movie, and that is Titanic. So Titanic uh, released, in, you know, holiday season uh, 1997. Uh, a long movie, even even by uh, my standards, as compared to yours, uh, clocking in at three hours and 15 minutes. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it's a true work of art. James Cameron uh, directs it, starring. Uh, I mean, I, anyone who's listened to in the beginning of our show knows that I'm a huge Leonardo DiCaprio fan, which probably is one of the reasons why I'm drawn to this movie, but starring Leonardo DiCaprio as, of course, J- Jack, who's the, the, the main character, Jack Dawson, uh, Kate Winslet, who plays kind of his, uh, Jack Dawson's love interest, uh, Rose, R- Rose DeWitt, and uh, then it also has a, a, ca- a wide cast of other characters, including Bill Paxton, who we talked about last week with Edge of Tomorrow. And uh, then also, I think the other kind of memorable role for me from this movie is, is Billy Zanes, who plays um, Cal Hockley, who is kind of the fian- who not, not kind of, he is the fiance of Kate Winslet's Rose in this movie. And, and you know, Jack is the other guy, but you know, the, the backdrop, of course, is this real life event of the Titanic, and, it, and it's made in an only voyage. Uh, I don't think I need to tell our listeners the plot of of Titanic, the boat crashes, and then I, I guess maybe the, the part that might have, I'm not actually sure. What? It, the boat crashes? Yeah, uh, uh, so little known fact, it sank in 1914, uh, <laughs> or I think it was 1914, I, I don't know, I don't know if I'm right there, uh, or maybe 1912, I don't remember. Anyway, it, the Titanic sank. Okay, it's at the bottom of the ocean now. <laughs> That's the <important> part. <laughs> yeah, it, it sank and and it was a disaster. So I I think calling this movie I think the, I saw it when I was looking up this movie earlier just to get just to color in the context a little bit more. It, I saw that this was genreed as an epic romance disaster film, which I don't know if I've <laughs> ever seen another movie genreed like that before. Uh, but to that. How about, uh, adrift? I think that's probably just like a romance, like a romantic drama. It's like <laughs> yeah. not even, like it's, ba- I mean, it is a survival movie, I guess, but never mind. We're not going to go back there at this point. <laughs> you don't need to revisit that while we're talking about Titanic. Yeah, certainly not. Uh, yeah, so anyway, so ba- basically against the backdrop of these real life events are, I'm not actually sure if this is a true story or not. i never actually looked it up myself, but I assume it's not. I think it's historical fiction. The romance? Yeah, the romance isn't real, yeah, right? It's, it's not true. No. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Cool. anyway but against this backdrop you have this romance between Kate Winslet who is engaged to be married to Billy Zane's character uh, coming across this you know lower class uh, essentially all but stowaway on the ship and that's Leonardo DiCaprio's Jack Dawson and it's not an upstairs downstairs kind of kind of experience but you do get this you, you have the mix of the upper class sensibilities which Billy Zane represents and what we'll say is the blue collar Person, which Leonardo DiCaprio represents, and I think this movie just does such a wonderful job portraying the romantic aspect of this movie between Kate Winslet, between Leonardo DiCaprio, and also in, including between with Billy Zane, who who is this person who maybe uh, the outer shell of which is someone who is very desirable, who you know comes from a good background, he has money, he promises a secure future, but is someone who like isn't a very good person as we see this movie unfold. And I just really appreciate i mean the incredibly memorable scenes that often are now kind of riffed upon and made fun of in other movies. Rightfully so, I think, as well. But for the time, so memorable, so authentic. The acting performances from the lead characters are fantastic. And uh, that's only played out by the fact that it was nominated for 14 Academy Awards. It, it went up against L.A. Confidential in a lot of categories and I think beat it in all of them. Yeah, I think, I think it that yeah, I don't remember how many it won in Academy Awards, but... I mean, it didn't win 14 Academy Awards, I'll tell you that much, but... It didn't win any acting Oscars. I think it, might, it probably won, like, nine. I mean, that sounds right. I'll take, <laughs> take yeah. your word for it. I think... Um, actually, no, it, it won 11. It won 11 okay. Academy Awards. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a remarkable film. Uh, James Cameron, as he may be maligned these days for Avatar... I and mean, this is i mean this is some of his best work it's just an, it's a, it's just a wonderful film and, and it's not one that i revisit very often because it is such a it's such a commitment to sit down for 3 hours and 15 minutes to watch it but it's yeah. it's a really good movie if you haven't seen it ever before it's it's absolutely worth seeing and and to boot this is 1997 early 1998 this movie made 2.2 billion at the box office
1: yeah and i, I mean you talk about how scenes from this movie are still spoofed like, I think that just shows how iconic it really is. That, Absolutely. Like, you know, I was two years old when this movie came out, but I know, like, the... I know the the My Heart Will Go On scene, like... Yep. You know, as well as any scene any scene in any movie. And, like, you know, people from younger generations than me, you know, no, are, are familiar with that scene with other scenes, you know, with paint me like one of your French girls
2: and all these other moments in the movie. Um, Absolutely. Which have, have now just become, you know, household
1: sayings. Um... And, yeah, I mean, you know, it's such a... It's, it is so long. It is such a spectacle that not everything in the movie works for me. Um, but, you know, but you cannot deny the effectiveness of that last hour to an hour and a half is some of the best special effects filmmaking, like, of all time. Um, you know, Adrift has a great shipwreck in it, but it doesn't hold the candle to um, what we get in the last part of this movie. And
2: also, in the cast, you, you, uh, you neglected to mention... Kathy Bates as the unsinkable Molly Brown, who I oh. also think gives a great supporting performance. You're right. Uh, and unsinkable is just such a, such a great adjective for this movie. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, but
1: yeah, so, I mean, you know, this is a movie that will be uh, watched for centuries to come, and rightfully so, I think, even if it is no, no, nowhere near perfect for me.
2: Yeah, definitely. All right, so those are our favorite films from
1: 1997. Next time, we'll be going through 1998. And and I should add, if you're listening and you think that we forgot a great movie from 1997,
2: um, tweet at Scott or I um, and let us know what movie that is and why you think it's the best of 1997. Yeah, I mean, we recognize Uh, that we... I mean, one of the films that we haven't mentioned is Goodwill Hunting, which did come out in 1997. I have to admit that, and Scott, you made your guilty admission that you haven't seen a Miyazaki film uh it just in terms of i don't i mean i'm not terribly embarrassed to not have seen goodwill hunting but i have to admit that i haven't seen it and it's some, it is a movie that i probably should have seen by now i mean i think it's good like i don't think it's
1: near the best of this year i think it has you know good acting and you know, obviously it, matt damon and ben affleck
2: made their name with this movie but i don't think it's any robin williams well yeah i mean matt, matt damon and ben affleck like this was this was how they actually made their name oh probably yeah yeah it was an but yeah, but he. I just meant like Robin anymore. Williams is incredible. Yeah, in the um, movie, from what I hear. But, but yeah, I mean, I don't think it's by any means like an essential
1: essential movie. Um, but you know, some other movies that I thought about too from this year. Um, also, two other courtroom dramas. Like I was surprised to see three really good lawyer movies that came out in this year. You know, we have the Rainmaker, of course, The Devil's Advocate, which is just a really bonkers movie directed by Taylor Hatford. Which, if you haven't seen it, with Keanu Reeves and. Al Pacino, uh, actually one of Keanu and Charlie's Theron as well, actually one of Keanu's better performances in my opinion. Um, I'm actually kind of a Keanu apologist. I think he's pretty good in a lot of movies. But um, but he plays a young lawyer who goes to Al Pacino's firm and basically finds out that Al Pacino is actually Satan. Um, so it's a crazy movie. Uh, and then also Amistad, which is you know the true story of a, of a um, slave rebellion, directed by Steven Spielberg, I believe. Um, and stars Matthew McConaughey and Anthony Hopkins. And the the, the closing argument scene uh, with Anthony Hopkins playing John Quincy Adams is like one of the greatest courtroom scenes in a movie. Um, so yeah, check all those out as well. Before we uh, conclude this episode, uh, Scott, uh, I think we have some news items that we missed
2: out last week and maybe a couple more new things that have come up this week. Sure, yeah. We can speed some of these. There's a lot, and I don't know if we have much like commentary to provide on a lot of these, but some yeah. of the things that have come across... Our Wires, respectively. Uh, first up, this is a little while ago now, but relevant to the solo release, th- the next anthology movie, or at least, uh, uh, I shouldn't say maybe not the next one, but but an anthology movie that will be made in the near future is uh, a Boba Fett movie, which uh, you had some hot takes on on Twitter, <laughs> I saw. And then there, there's been rumors for a while, and I think these rumors persist, that there might be an Obi-Wan movie happening. But the Boba Fett one has now been confirmed.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I said about the Boba Fett movie was I think that, It'd be like making a movie about Millard Fillmore if you had to make a, pres- a movie about a president. Like, I, You might end up being good, but like, there are so many more interesting stories and interesting characters that I think you could make a movie about
2: in the Star Wars universe. But, yeah. you know, I
1: who, who, who knows? Maybe this movie will
2: shut me up. Yeah, I also think that, like, that's just, like, I don't know if that many people would agree with you. I think Boba Fett's a pretty beloved character in the Star Wars universe, in spite of... Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's just my take, and I, there have been a lot of books written about Boba Fett, like, pre... I know none of them are, like, canon now, but in the original extended Star Wars canon of, of, of books, Boba Fett yeah. is a very... A very I mean, I think pretty often written about character, and I think he he still maintains. Maybe not amongst the younger generations who didn't grow up with the original movies, but I think he was very popular after you know his appearance in episodes five and six, uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm just mainly thinking of young Boba Fett from like
2: Attack of the Clones, which is not a great character, yeah. but J- Jan- uh, Jango Django you know. J- dies, so you know he's got to give him got to give him something there. Yeah, we will see. Yeah. Well, yeah, like you said, we'll see. I think that other people. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna disagree with you. I think there are other stories that I would personally be more interested in hearing. Uh, but I think that it's not. It's not. I, I can't not explain why. You know, Kathleen Kennedy and the Star Wars people over at Disney or in Lucasfilm. Are, I I can understand why they're making Boba Fett. Cool. All right. Also, the, again, this is a, again a really brief one. We mentioned. On a previous episode that Danny Boyle was rumored to be directing Bond 25, he's not been confirmed as directing the new James Bond movie, also starring, which we already knew and was confirmed, Daniel Craig, but this Bond 25 has also been given a release date, and that's going to be holiday 2019. All right, well, we will do that for episode number 50-something of Scott, uh, something like a Scott Absolutely. You know, I, I'm counting on it. I'm, I'm a big James Bond fan. Not as big as Mike Kalinowski, but... <laughs> I am a James. Yeah, seriously. Uh, anyway, moving on. I think that'll be good. I, I, we've already said our pieces about whether or not we think Daniel Craig should be returning as Bond. I think that maybe it, it's disappointing because there are some people who right now would be, I think, very eligible for Bond movies who I would be very interested in being in a Bond movie. But it seems like the time is passing and, and Daniel Craig is back again. And, you know, I think for me, he's, even if he's not the most iconic James Bond, I think he might be the best one. So I, I can't be too disappointed. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So Ryan Coogler uh, still riding the heels of Black Panther, which I saw... this weekend was still in theaters here in Boston. By the way, there there are two <laughs> showtimes for Black Panther in Boston today, actually. But Ryan Coogler wants to make a female-led Black Panther spinoff. I can't imagine why there weren't any good female characters in that movie. If you yeah, listen oh, yeah, to our totally. discussions, <laughs> all awful. yeah. No, I mean to, it, it would be. I think, the, I think the only question that I have is, all right, which female is going to be the the lead yeah. in this movie? Because there's so many incredible ones. Uh, you know, you have Shuri, you have Okoye, you have, um, oh, I'm forgetting one of the main ones right now. The love interest of Black Panther. Oh, well. I can't remember. I can't remember either. Well, anyway, the, the point is, you have three or four right off the top of my head who I'd be like, oh, they'd be great to get their own spin off movies. <laughs> and uh, now it's just a matter of time. I can't wait for that. I mean, actually, I take that back. That's not confirmed. He might not. I don't know if he actually will do that or not. But he wants to, apparently. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, with the with the prevalence
1: of you know a lot more female led movies being uh, made these days
2: a, a, in franchises too. Um, I, yeah, think I mean that one, Wonder I Woman. Would, I would be surprised honestly if he didn't go through with it. Yeah, I mean, you have Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel as kind of like the banner bearers. I mean, yeah, Black Widow never next, got her own movie, but yeah. And next week we're going to talk about
1: Ocean's Eight or next episode we're going to talk about Oceans 8 which is a sort of a reboot of a franchise with an all female cast
2: yeah I can't wait to watch Anne Hathaway have a necklace stolen off of her so let's go <laughs> alright so we mentioned you mentioned Counter Reboot just a few moments ago but Halle Berry has been confirmed for John Wick 3 interesting I wonder what kind of role she will be playing maybe a love interest for, for John Well, hopefully, we'll hopefully something more interesting than a love interest but yeah yeah hopefully like a villain or something that would be cool. Well, that or maybe just like a femme fatale rival. Maybe like a rival. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, doesn't matter. One of the more interesting stories that I came across this week and, and actually when I had written this down originally, which when we were going to do a news section last week, but then we went two hours and forty-five minutes deep without even talking about news, was The Muppets. So the the owners of the Muppet, I guess, brand suing the makers of the Happy Time Murders movie, which is a movie set to be released in August starring Melissa McCarthy. Which is essentially riffing on a lot of concepts of the Muppets, uh, or and maybe even has some of the characters in it. I'm not, or the likenesses of some of the characters. I'm not. Su- I didn't do a ton of research into this, but th- suing them for defamation of the Muppets brand, so tarnishing the Muppets brand. So just this past, So this this happened. This was announced like a, a couple weeks ago that this lawsuit was happening, and then just in the last couple days, I think maybe even Friday or Thursday, it turns out that uh, the suit has been dismissed. So the Happy Time murders will not be suppressed. The Muppets cannot suppress this movie coming out in August, but it's just absurd. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, we'll. I'm now this movie's on my radar. I'm gonna actually check it out probably when it comes out. I don't know if I would have before, but yeah. if this movie is like, just like poking fun at the Muppets and like the Muppets is suing it, that's like a really bad look. Yeah, I mean,
1: not to get too deep into copyright law, but under the Copyright Act, if uh, if you're if you're like just satirizing the work or or you know making a parody of it, then, like, there's no copyright infringement whatsoever. I mean, that's, like, a base. like, this is my understanding of the Copyright Act after having, like, two days of copyright law in one one L, in one L year. So if I can understand that after two days of that, then there's no reason why the people at Sesame Street shouldn't have
2: understood that. Okay, yeah, so I just, I just like, quickly looked up the Wikipedia article for this movie, and it's an upcoming American puppet crime comedy film. And the plot premise is... There's so many of those. Yeah, I know. A, a really oversaturated genre, for sure. In a world where <laughs> puppets are reviled and considered inferior to humans, puppet private investigator Phil Phillips reunites with his ex-partner detective <laughs> Connie Edwards. And so Phil Phillips, I believe, is... Um... The winner of American Idol season uh, 10. Oh, God, is that real? Hey, I don't know. Well, Philip Phillips, yeah, he had that song home. You know him. Oh, that's right. Well, maybe this <laughs> is... Then. Well, anyway, so the, Phil Phillips is is a puppeteer who I believe is... In the likeness of one of the Muppets, but anyway, reunites with his, with his ex-partner, uh, who's played by M- Melissa McCarthy as a human, uh, to find a serial killer who murdered Phil's brother and is now targeting the cast members of the 1980s television series The Happy Time Gang, which is is the Happy Time Gang. I think I think that's going to riff on the Muppets probably. So yeah. I maybe they had some ground there. I'm not sure. Um, it doesn't sound like it to me, but, I, again, I don't know the full details. Yeah, so the Ses- Sesame Workshop sued, uh, I guess, whatever... I, I, don't, I don't know if it's Brian Henson who's directing the movie or the production company behind it, which would be Black Bear Pictures. I'm not sure how, how that would work there. But, mm. anyway, yeah, apparently sued sued the makers of this film and, and lost. So, I I don't know if it's actually... I don't know i don't have any familiar familiar with copyright law and i'm not familiar enough with this movie to tell whether or not it's going to be satirizing the muppets but it seems that way Yeah. anyway doesn't matter moving on i thought it was a funny story i laughed out loud when i saw this news story and then when i went back just this morning to check in on other news stories i saw that the lawsuit had been uh dismissed so there you go sad yeah indeed so much so much brand tarnishing it's not fair <laughs> all right, Netflix again. So, new story. Netflix's value uh, per a couple weeks ago has now officially surpassed Disney's, which this just floored me. Yeah, that, I mean that's pretty crazy.
1: Like, you know, you do think that like you know Netflix does have a lot of Disney products, but still, like the, the all the spheres
2: that Disney is in now, like I mean, that's, they own quite impressive. They have the license for Star Wars and Marvel movies. Yeah, not to mention like. ESPN, like ABC. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know how this value was calculated. It's just a news article that I saw, yeah. but um, maybe I should dig a little deeper into that before we talk about it next time on the show. But to me, that was just really surprising. I understand that like Netflix's business model is inherently like more is more like you just generate more profit off software as a service than you do Disney, which is generally speaking. I mean, they're getting into the streaming service in the next few years yeah, with launching their own products. Yeah, yeah but I mean, they're, they're selling... They are creating goods and selling them, whereas Netflix has created a software and only has to maintain it. They don't have to, they don't have to generate new software, necessarily. So I understand how like that business model is nef- it might have more value just in terms of profit, but nevertheless, I, I thought that was really surprising that Netflix had uh, Netflix's value was greater than that of Disney's. Yeah, Definitely. All right. All right. So more recent, two new recent stories that that came out, and then uh, one that you mentioned as well to me. But first, uh, the power. There's a Power Rangers sequel in the works. This was just recently uh, revealed, I think a couple days ago, and that we talked. There was a Power Rangers movie kind of reboot, live action film. I believe it was last year, but it might have been 2016. But I think it was early 2017, and it was like moderately successful. I, I was telling you off air that I watched it for the first time a couple weeks ago actually on a plane on a flight back to boston and i thought that that was a perfectly enjoyable way to experience that movie it was not great but it was satisfying it was an it was it was good enough for for a plane the only thing i know about the first power rangers movie is that there
1: was a celebrity showdown match with the cast of it um which was fairly entertaining (laughs) um cool but other than that i only know. From
2: my childhood years watching the television show, but you know, maybe I'll have to catch up with the first. Oh, eh, I don't know. You have to do that if it's convenient, okay. but I wouldn't. I wouldn't go out of your way. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so moving on, more relevant probably to our listeners or something that they might care more about. Andrew Lincoln, star of The Walking Dead, uh, revealed this past week that he will be leaving The Walking Dead after next season, which is season nine, which is big news for this franchise. I think this is really big news. Andrew Lincoln's one of the few people who's been with this TV show, with this franchise since the beginning. Yep. Who's gonna be around to yell Carl, now, like in every single episode? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I I'll admit that I fell off very early on in this show. I fell off after the yeah, first season. Uh, but I know The Walking Dead has been. I mean, it's nearly been a decade now, so it's it yeah, a, it's it's a, a spin off and everything. Absolutely, yeah. So, and then last piece of bit of news before we wrap up here, your most anticipated movie of twenty seventeen, or sorry, uh, for of twenty eighteen. Might still be getting released this year, but has gotten a big pushback. Yeah, um, so this...
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to anticipate it a little bit longer, I guess. Uh, and th- the movie is Under the Silver Lake, which was is the new film from David Robert Mitchell. Um, his next movie... Or his first movie since It Follows, which I'm obsessed with. Um, and, you know, I thought the trailers looked really promising. In fact, it was scheduled to drop on June 22nd, so just in a few weeks from now. Um, but apparently the it didn't play it played to mixed reviews it can um which you know it, i mean if they're just mixed like i don't think it's necessarily requires a, another cut and maybe this isn't even the reason why another cut um or, or or even if david robert mitchell is is doing another cut of the movie we're not really sure but the release of the movie has been delayed down till december 7th um and so yeah i mean i i'm willing to wait like uh, like I said, this is my most anticipated movie of the year. Um, I have faith that David Robert Mitchell will do great things with this movie. Um, but it's, you know, it's a shame that we have to wait a little bit longer. Um, I, you know, I'd be interested to know more about what the, the criticism of it was. Um, but regardless, I think the end product will probably, probably benefit from
2: having the section. Nine. Yeah, I mean, very rarely would it, I think, can anyone ever say that a movie doesn't benefit from having more time? Yeah. But it's, some people might ha- be concerned that it's being delayed six months, just three or four weeks before its release date. Or, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember which date you said, but, you know, n- very not very far in advance of its release yeah. date. Yeah, yeah. Of course, at the same time, it is, it's A24, right? Right. Yeah. And, like, so. they have not had a bad movie, like,
1: that I can even think of. So, and, I mean, Hereditary, which is their current project out right now, is, like,
2: playing to rave reviews. People are calling it, like, the modern-day Exorcist. Well, it's coming out. Um, it's coming out next week. It's not out yet, but...
1: Yeah, well, it's, a lot of reviews are coming in for it already, though. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, a, a, I think A24 is uh, uh, probably the best studio working right now, like, production-wise. Um, like, the, in terms of they're just making consistently interesting movies um and i you know i think that that's another fact which is probably encouraging even though this movie has been delayed it's probably encouraging that it will turn out okay in the end absolutely well okay so i think that should just
2: about do it um for this week's episode of some like it Scott. scott where can our lovely listeners find you on twitter they can find me at at s shelton 2013 i don't tweet that much uh i mainly just retweet and, and reply to yours when i feel like uh when i feel like it but i don't know who knows maybe maybe we're <laughs> will... not a leader Not oh, sure we can call it that yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and you can find me at Scarfy i do tweet rather frequently um so we, we you get both approaches to
1: twitter from from us um absolutely but more importantly we hope you have enjoyed this uh episode of the show if you have and you'd like to support the show Please don't forget about our Patreon page. There are a lot of different tiers you can subscribe to on there and, and, and donate a little bit. Um, but if you choose not to support our Patreon, that's okay too. Um, we would still love it if you would subscribe to our podcast on iTunes as well as well um, and Apple Podcasts as well as rating and reviewing it so that we continue, can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope to be back for our next episode, on which we we will be reviewing Ocean's Eight and the new Pixar uh, sequel, The Incredibles 2. Uh, For now, though, I'm Scott Harvey. Uh, For Scott
2: Shelton, we will see you next time. Thanks, everyone.